Final Night Poetry Slam. I want to sew the world into its sheets. I want to beat it with a bat until the warning sticks. A handgun is a machine. I'm tired of holding the wounded animal of my heart and instructing it on how to bleed. All I see are stars in the mouth of a tiny ghost. Can you hear that? All those pins are on Oh God, bend low your ear. Acknowledge this humble servant's simple prayer. Cover him in light and strength that his plea may reach the far corners of this creation that comprises you. May all that is was, shall, and could have been, take heed and hear this. Hello again. I could think of no better way to kick off this particular podcast than with Ian Doggerty reading Invocation. Oh my god, I'm coming at you from the other side of Team Selection Weekend, and I gotta tell you, it was as promised. This was not a disappointing weekend at all. This was one of the more intense, more amazing Poetry Slam weekends that I can remember in a very, very long time. We're going to cover all of the everything that shook out over this weekend. Before we do that, I did want to say thank you one more time to our guest last week, to Paulie Lippman. Oh, by the way, thank you for listening to the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. My name is Eddie Eifler. I'm coming at you from the Poetry Slam caverns over here in Denver, Colorado, and we are going to break everything down over this weekend. So thank you again to Paulie Lippman. He had one of the highest rated most listened to podcasts that I've done in my very short time, so I did want to send a particular shout out to him. Thank you once again for being our guest. Uh, This week, we're going to talk about the Slam Nuba team selection. We're going to talk about the Mercury Cafe team selection. And I also want to get into a little bit of strategy here. Just some things that I noticed between both of the Slam Offs. Maybe some patterns, some words of advice. Uh, for posterity. So you can take this, you can leave it. But I did kind of want to talk about some of the things that I noticed between both nights. Also, oh my god, our guest this week is none other than Poetry Slam Incorporated Executive Director, local Poetry Slam legend, Susie Q. Smith. Yes, you saw that correctly on the download. We've got Susie Q. Smith coming at you. In this amazing interview, she was very generous with her time, gave me 20 minutes, and you are going to love every last second of that 20 minutes. So, here we go. We're going to head right into the Slam Nuba team selection. Slam Nuba. Slam Nuba. All right, this is my first time covering Slam Nuba in this podcast because it's been the first time there's been a Slam Nuba since I've started this podcast, so I'm really, really excited to get into this. Uh, First and foremost, we did have a feature that night, Uwatik Kumba, and he was from the uh, East Coast, and he was uh, really great at setting up the crowd, at at getting them hyped and fired up, uh, getting them invested in the night. He did a mixture of sort of hip-hop, sort of narrative, 
uh, more spoken word type of set. He did a little bit of everything, so I thought it was really appropriate uh, for him to go and prep this crowd. We had nine competitors in this slam. There were no cuts. It was all nine reading three poems, and then your top cumulative five scores were on the team with the number six as the alternates so far. Now, anyone who has been a part of Denver Poetry Slam knows that this time of year, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, Sometimes poets will go out for a team without ever intending on being a part of that team should they make it. Sometimes poets go out for a team and something comes up or or they had prior commitments that are going to prevent them from being a full and complete member. So they have to... Uh, talk to their team members, they have to kind of like let them know what's going on, ask them if it's going to be a problem. So uh, I'm giving you this information as I have it, uh, as it sits as the time of this broadcast. So we had nine poets in this slam-off, the top five of which went on to be uh, members of the team. Uh, number six is the alternate. Uh, I'm going to break these down round by round before we get into who won and who did not. So in your first round, we had Tolua followed by Johnny Osai, then Hakeem Furious, Kylie C., yours truly, Eddie Eifler, was involved, uh, Hoser, Alejandro Jimenez, Meta, who was a transplant from Guam, and Lusa Fury were all involved in this team selection. Uh, I want to talk about some of these patterns, some of these trends I noticed. Uh, one of the, the most difficult things to do in Poetry Slam is go first overall in a team selection. Because the audience is not always prepped. The audience does not always know what to expect about a poetry slam, especially if the bout manager has done his or her or their job and really picked five judges who are blank slates, who do not know anyone, who preferably have never been to this thing we call a poetry slam before, so they are coming at it from a completely uh, biasless background. So that's why it is so difficult to start off going first overall in a team selection. The crowd isn't quite warmed up yet. The judges don't know what to make of things. They, they don't know what they like. They don't know what they dislike. And oftentimes you get some kind of a flashpoint in that first round where the judges' scores get a precipitous increase, get, get a noticeable bump. Uh, and you can point to one specific poet where you can say, aha, that was the flashpoint. That was where it happened. Toluwa drew first overall in this slam. And she came out there absolutely swinging. I'll play you a clip from the poem she did in the first round. I do not want a husband who thinks I was born when he found me, that I became when he kissed me, that I exist because I am his. Toluwa set the entire expectation for the rest of the, not just round, but for the rest of the night with this poem. Virginity and sexual submission. Oh my God. I have... Literally, and I've been doing this for 13 years, I have literally never seen this kind of a reaction to anyone going first overall in a team selection. And I have seen poets do very well from the number one position. I have seen poets uh, you know, still make it onto teams and still uh, you know, be competing members of teams coming from the one position, but I have never in my life seen this level of reaction from an audience, from a set of judges, from a poet that went first overall in a team selection. Toluwa not only set the tone, she set the high mark scores for a long time in this first round. She absolutely played this the most perfect she possibly could have. She absolutely read the exact right poem the exact right way, and it delivered in spades. Following her up was Johnny Osai, 
Uh, he's a, a regular of this podcast. If you've been listening to me, you definitely know that name. If you've been around in Denver Poetry, you definitely know that name. He started us off with one of his more intense pieces called Boogeyman. This was about his, his experiences with his dad growing up and being abused and then uh, what that was like seeing his dad so many years later. Such an intense poem. Like I said, a, a really heavy, really intense poem to follow up what Tolu did. And as a result, uh, Tolu, like I said, set the theme, set the tone, set everything, the scores for the night. And there was a drop between Tolua's scores and Johnny Osai's scores. Uh, not to discount his poem at all, not to discount what was going on with him, but like I said before, Tolua absolutely set the tone, set the scores, set the bar for the night, and Johnny's scores were not as high as Tolua's. And that would be true for a lot of poets that would follow her. Uh, Hakim Furious gets up and does one of his uh, standard poems. Uh, it's one about working in a gas station. Really well done because it allows him to address so many different topics. And from the perspective of uh, a gas station employee, from the perspective of someone who kind of like witnesses the entire spectrum of humanity go by, from the people buying all the lottery tickets to uh, the Prius that forgets with pump it's on to uh, the young kids coming in uh, buying the cigarettes and the, the skittles the tea he, he touches on race he touches on class uh, allows him to do a lot of things with that poem um, Kylie follows up with feeling ironically dominant now uh, Kylie did have a drop in this uh, particular performance I think maybe she was a little nervous or or you know maybe I, I don't want I don't want to speculate but Kylie did have a drop in this poem that I think hurt her scores overall. Uh, I went out and did a bit of a gamble. If we want to talk about criticism here, I did uh, one of my older-ish poems, uh, Handguns, and just like Johnny's, it's a really heavy, intense poem uh, that may not connect very well with the audiences until they're in the right kind of space to, uh, to receive that poem, and as a result, I did not get very good scores in that one. Following me up, though, was Hoser, Hoser Guerrero, who completely piggybacked off what I was doing brilliantly. He did his Columbus Day poem that I've played a little bit of a clip of before on this show, but I'm going to play you another one uh, just because it was such a, a well-placed, well-timed piece. So here's a Hoser with Columbus Day. And suddenly, our classroom turned into the battle at the Little Bighorn. And the ancestors said, today is a good day to die, and I'll be damned if I let this motherfucker lie. But I was seven years old. <laughs> like I said, Kozer could not have played that more perfectly. He got the exact right draw. He followed the exact right poem with the exact right poem choice. Like, everything about that was absolutely perfect. And Hoser had the high score going out of this first round with that piece. Now, after him, in that first round, we had Alejandro Jimenez, who we haven't seen in a little while. He is a Slam Nuba alum. He was on the team a number of years ago. Um, and he has not missed a step at all. He came out there with one of his more consistently well-scoring uh, pieces, Why Mexicans Shouldn't Use the N-Word, and it is so appropriate, such a well-timed piece, just like Hoser. He was in the perfect spot, did the perfect poem, but Hoser had really talked about flashpoints, really flashed the crowd on that, and uh, as a result, like I said, Hoser had the high score, not to diminish anyone else's poem, not to diminish Alejandro or any of the, the other poets that came before him or after him, he was just definitely the high point of that first round. Uh, Alejandro 
came through with the why Mexicans shouldn't use the N-word. And I think that's that was a really important piece, a very necessary piece for him to do, and it certainly established him in that first round as someone who was going to contend for a membership spot on this team. When you say this word, does it feel as if you have a cotton gin fan tied around your tongue? Does your mouth feel as bloody as Fruitvale Station? Does it feel as if you're a strange fruit, a broken branch dangling, swaying, surrounded by clansmen and their children cheering because there is one less of you, hermana y hermano, they used to hang us too. After Alejandro, we had Meta. Uh, like I mentioned before, Meta is a transplant from Guam, came through, and his first piece in this round was Fresh Off the Boat, or FOB, as he kept calling it. And this was really good. Uh, uh, Meta used this opportunity to really distinguish his voice from everyone else's. Uh, Toluwa really set the tone, really set the night with her piece. And I think one of the major themes that she really helped solidify is this idea of reclamation, of taking back uh, something that an, an oppressor has stolen from you, either you know literally, figuratively, emotionally, historically, and Meta really piggybacked off of that theme with this uh, fresh off the boat poem, this fob poem. You're only really fob if you take everything off the boat and admit your cargo too. Like I said, really helped establish his voice amongst everyone else. And then Lucifuri, another longtime elder statesman in the poetry slam community had the good fortune of drawing the very last spot in this first round, came out, played, did Black in America, uh, really contributed to this theme of the first round, this idea of reclamation, of taking back, reclaiming an identity, reclaiming a history, reclaiming a persona, and, and it was a perfect poem. You grab your purse when I walk down the boulevard like I'm going back snatch reparations from your massacre. Perfect for what it needed to be, perfect for what uh, it needed to accomplish in that point. So like I said, first round, Hoser is your leader, but not following too far behind him were Alejandro, Meta, Lucifuri, and Toluwa. Everyone else, that it was playing uh, catch-up. Everyone else, it was definitely a scramble for uh, uh, positioning, for jockeying, for position. And in that second round, by random draw, we started off with Hakeem Furious, just could not catch a break in the draws that he got here. Both were super, super early, and I think that did hurt his odds, hurt his chances. Uh, he did his uh, Hotep piece, where he talks about the after party after the uh, Black Intellectual Society and, and breaks down all the different Hoteps that he sees, and really uses that as an opportunity to talk about uh, stereotypes amongst intellectuals. Uh, I'm going to play you a clip from that where he really kind of hammers the point home. Knowledge is power. Power is a binary. Those who have it and those who don't. Like I said, this is really, to me, from what I, I interpret, from what I understand and take away, the point of the poem, this idea that power is a, a dichotomy. It's a dynamic. Those who have it and those who don't. And in this piece, he really kind of dissects the different ways that these uh, intellectuals have of gaining power and giving power. Uh, another one of the lines that I didn't play for you is this idea of uh, PhDs versus Kufis and, and street power and street uh, charisma, street credentials and, and credit versus academic credentials and, and how they lend themselves to, to different types of power and different types of access. Uh, really well done piece. But like I said, I just think he got swallowed up by really poor draws. It's not his fault. It's no one's fault. It's just kind of how the slam gods choose to do us sometimes. Following him up, 
was Lucifuri in the second round. He did one of his newer pieces, The Women and Children First, where he talks about his theories behind toxic masculinity, where it comes from, why it persists, uh, why it damages so many people, and and he really examines this this big issue from his personal lens, from what he perceives as this idea of toxic masculinity, uh, by saying that it once served a purpose. This idea that uh, men were historically the, the hunter-gatherers, the protectors of the household, and that toxic masculinity and violence against women is what happens when men aim for other men and miss. Uh, it was a gamble. It, it was not guaranteed to pay off, especially considering the themes that had already kind of been established at that point in the night. And because of that, Lucifuri got his lowest score of the night. His lowest score was still pretty good, don't get me wrong, but it was, I'm sure, not what he was hoping for in the grand scheme of things. After Lucifuri was, yours truly once again, read a brand new piece that I'm calling Bullseye. Uh, talks about how there are certain lawmakers who want to put guns with teachers and put them in a classroom. Uh, more like peek behind the curtain, full disclosure, I am a teacher. I'm pretty sure I've mentioned that before, but for those who are, who've never heard this podcast before, just a little bit about me. I teach high school in a place in Denver, uh, north of the metro area called Commerce City, and a lot of my demographics are very Chicano, very uh, Spanish as a second language. We've got a certain percentage of monolingual Spanish speakers, uh, very high poverty, very high free lunch, free and reduced lunch. It's an alternative school. So I've got some pretty strong specific feelings about what happens to teachers and how they are perceived and the legislation and laws that are being talked about around them. And so I put a lot of that into this poem uh, that, again, I'm calling Bullseye. And it, from a strategic standpoint, if we're being critical here, going back to strategy and choices, uh, departed from this theme of reclamation, from this theme of uh, reclaiming identity, reclaiming uh, history, like it really departed from that, and so uh, it did not get very good scores. I'll say that for myself, like it, from a poem choice standpoint, it, I understand why it did not score as well as some of the other pieces there. After me, we had Johnny Osai with uh, another one of his classic pieces, Switchblade Masquerade, where he talks about uh, a night where he ended up uh, running into another car when he was uh, out. Uh, he he was he had a drunk driving episode. He ended up running into another car. Spent some time in the hospital, and the whole thing is a the refrain is blackout, wake up, blackout, wake up. And every time he wakes up, he learns something new about the night, and he believes himself to have hit and killed the people in this car. But we find out at the end, just like he found out at the end of this whole episode, that nobody died, that everyone was alive and would make a recovery. And the last line. In the poem was 12 hours I spent as a murderer, and had it been any less, I would have kept on drinking. It's a really powerful piece. Um, after that, we had Hoser again. Hoser with, have you seen this picture? Oh my god. I have heard this poem a handful of times, and every single time it absolutely just flays me in half. This is such a well-done, well-constructed poem. The clip I've got is not going to do it any kind of justice, but I'm going to play you just a little clip of it so you get some idea of what I'm talking about. No mother should ever be burdened to have to choose the last image the world will remember their child by to this day. 
Those women still believe their sons are alive, walking down the streets of Mexico, wailing the names of their vanished sons. They are modern-day Yoronas. Yeah, the, so that poem, oh my god. I, I cannot stress enough how well, how brilliantly this is written and performed by Hoser. The whole premise of which is uh, the world seeing the last photo of your child that it will ever see. And what picture would you choose if it was your child? At one point in the poem, he asks his own mother, you know, if it was me, what picture would you choose? It is such a hard-hitting, such a powerful poem. And it was absolutely what the second round needed. It was absolutely the, the perfect one for him to do at that point. Again, Hoser coming with not just the excellent poem, but coming with the excellent strategy as well. After him, we had Meta. Uh, reading his second round piece with Transplant uh, about how he was called out by uh, white patriarchy by, by a random white person about being a transplant. So I'll play you another clip from that one. You ask a white boy what American culture looks like, and he'll preach about diversity. He'll point to all the artifacts that belong to people of color. How you gonna take pride in the melting pot and ignore who brings the flavor? And just like the first round, and just in keeping with this theme that has been established throughout the night, this is Meta kind of reclaiming his history, reclaiming his identity, and, and really showing people how that fits in the larger context of white identity, of white history, talking about how, hey, my people, where I come from in, in Guam, we can trace our history back thousands of years. Where's your history at, guy who told me I was a transplant? Really great job at, again, really establishing and cementing his voice as separate and important amongst the other voices and really in keeping in line with this uh, prevailing, prevailing theme of, of reclaiming identity, reclaiming history. After him, we had Toluwa with her second poem. A brand new one. She read two. Actually, she read three brand new pieces this night, two of which were off paper. She had not memorized them yet. And this was the first one uh, unmemorized off paper. It was No Accent African, and that was the, the repetition in it. Uh, no Accent African does this. No Accent African does that. And in keeping in line with the theme that she established, it's another one about uh, taking your identity and seeing how it fits in a larger context of things and what's fair and what's not fair and, and, and reclaiming that part uh, that is your own and and denying the people who would tell you that it doesn't fit there another really good piece and a really brave call for her reading an unmemorized piece off of paper in the second round but it, it did pay off for her after her we had kylie c once again coming in with uh falling in love uh talking about love poem and if i'm speaking critically like i've been doing so far uh, I will say that I have not seen very many love poems do very well in slam-offs. You know what? I, I've, I've seen it before. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But it is they, they have to be like exceptional, uh, well-concept, well-executed, well-written love poems to work in the context of a slam-off, where you have just so many voices, so many big personalities, all trying to separate themselves and distinguish themselves from one another. Uh, love poems don't tend to fare well in that environment. And that, I think, was the case uh, with the scores involved in, in Kylie's. I am not making any kind of criticism or, or claim or personal opinion about the poem itself, just the strategy in this case. Because leaving the poem itself aside, I think that most love poems out there written would have probably scored about the same if they were done in this same spot. And so 
like not to lay any criticism against the poet or the poem itself. It was just a strategic choice in this case that I think really uh, cemented those scores or really brought around those scores and what they were. So that was Kylie with Fallen in Love. And then Alejandro Jimenez rounded out our second round with uh, When They Come For Me. Now, especially in the climate of Donald Trump and especially in the climate of right wing and of you know, deportation and talking about when they come for me. This was so powerful. And Alejandro really tapped into the emotion he needed to tap into to accomplish what this piece needed to accomplish. Talking about when they come for me, tell my children this, tell them this, tell them I was this. And, and when they, they beat me bloody, when they drag me away, you know, tell them of my memory. It was really, really well done and really, really true really visceral for everyone in that room because like I said in this age of Trump and this age of rampant right wing going crazy this is a real possibility this could happen to a lot of people on this list and a lot of people in that room that night Alejandro came through with when they come for me in the third round we went the high score to low score so we had Hoser kicking us off with one of his uh, classic pieces the frats uh, talking about going to a frat party where they quote-unquote celebrated his Mexican culture and about all the... It's it's equal parts hilarious and horrifying to think that this actually happened, but, you know, he, he really does, like, point out this campus culture, this campus lifestyle of insult without meaning to insult, which makes it even more of an insult. It's a really great piece, and Hoser... He's been doing it for long enough. He knows exactly how to perform this piece, what highs to hit, what lows to hit, when to hit them. So it absolutely, after that one, cemented him as the grand champion of Slam Nuba for the fourth year in a row. I don't think that's ever happened in the history. I mean, I could be wrong. I've not been around for the entire history of Slam, and if I am wrong, then definitely let me know. Uh, Eddie Eifler on Twitter E-I-F-L-E-R, find me on Facebook, but I'm pretty sure that four years in a row with the same champion is is pretty f hard to find. That's few and far between, if it ever has happened before. After him, we had Meta with the second high score. He did one of his poems called, I believe, Jeremy. I don't think, I'm not sure of the actual name, but it's about him being a teacher and having this troubled student named Jeremy and him using Jeremy as this uh, symbol for... Uh, young masculinity, the symbol for what's going on in teaching today. Really well done. Uh, Meta definitely, with that and the scores he came in, made this team as well. Alejandro Jimenez for the Brown Boys Who Come and Go. Great, great piece. Now we're at third place. We're starting to get into where scores are, are really going to start mattering. So if you're in third and you have a drop-off and the one down below you has a really powerful piece, you could drop to third, drop to fourth, maybe even, depending on what's going on, drop out of team positioning. So Alejandro had to come, and he had to get a really solid score with this piece, and he did. I'll play you a clip from it here. Sorrow does not have to be a burden. We make mistakes, but we are not the mistakes, brown boy, who told you self-love was a battlefield. I'll keep going back to it. Alejandro hitting this larger theme of reclamation, of taking back something that is yours and, and showing people how it fits in the dominant society. 
his commentary on the brown boys who come and go. The the writing was exquisite. The message was perfect. So Alejandro makes the team as well. After him, we had Toluwa, who did a poem for the venue, for the Crossroads. Give you a little bit of context for this. The Crossroads Theater, which has been the home of Slam Nuba since 2006, is being taken over. It is, is being taken over by a conglomeration, a, a group of owners who, when last I heard, want to turn it into a, quote, retail space. They want to get rid of the Crossroads Theater and turn it into a store of some kind, which would be an absolute crime. It is a travesty that this is happening. And it's all because the rent prices, the property prices are going so absolutely ridiculous in downtown, in Five Points, in Denver proper, that the poor crossroads that has been a center of culture and a center of gathering for so many years has, is now being cast aside for the sake of commercial business, for the sake of retail. It, it is a crime of culture. It is a crime of gentrification. And there are people working to stop this. And people are out there. And if you would like to support them, definitely find where those people are at. Talk to Kyle Sutherland. Talk to Elijah Talk to uh, any one of these people who slammed off. Talk to Tolua. Talk to uh, Hakeem Furious. To Hoser. They will let you know what's going on and what you can do to help. So Tolua did this poem for the crossroads, and it absolutely just brought the house down. I'll give you, again, a clip that's not going to do it justice, but I, I feel I have to address this piece because of not just its positioning, not just its significance within the context of the slam, but its significance in the context of what's going on in the larger history of things. So here's a clip for the crossroads. For every native bumper sticker slapped on the back of a Prius, there's an Apache grandmother who had to lose her language to bend that word into existence. Yeah, gentrification has hit Denver absolutely hard in the last handful of years, really pretty much ever since marijuana was legalized. Uh, property prices have gone up and up and up. And according to what I hear on the radio, this bubble is not about to burst anytime soon. We got a good three to five years of property values increasing and of rates and of home values just continuing to climb for at least the next three to five years. And the poor crossroads, which just became a victim of all of these increases became a victim of how popular Denver as a city has become. We've got so many people moving here. We, have, we are the second highest growing city in the entire country. We have about a thousand people moving to Denver every single month, and those people demand places to live. They demand places to shop and work. And the crossroads, I guess, just doesn't fit in the plans of all the people moving here. And that is just a crying shame. It is a tragedy. So Toluwa came and just let everyone know what was going on and made the team. I will go back to what I said a little before. Toluwa went first in the first round, completely set the tone for the night, completely let the other poets know this is what we're going to talk about. And if you don't talk about this, there's going to be consequences and repercussions in the scores and how they reflect on you. And Toluwa came out calling her shot and absolutely made this team. It was such a beautiful thing to see, not just with good performance, not just with good writing, but with important work. I cannot say enough nice things about uh, what she did. And following her up was Lucifuri, 
with one of his more well-known pieces, Impossible, which was good enough to get him on the team as well. Then we had a fight for the alternate position between pretty much Johnny Osai, Hakeem Furious, and myself. Uh, we were separated, I believe, by about three, four-tenths of a point, so it really was anybody's position at that point. And Johnny Osai went out there, he read uh, one of his more familiar pieces, Food is Love, and he was definitely feeling it that night. He went emotionally to a place I've never seen him go with this piece toward the end of it. He, he hit so hard at the turn that he started tearing up, he started welling up. You could definitely tell he was feeling every single word he was saying, and he made the audience feel it too. So Johnny Osai went up with Food is Love and claimed that last spot. Because of that poem, he is, as of the recording, as of right now, the alternate on Slam Nuba. Hakeem Furious went up and did his poem that, you know what, I personally think on a different night with different crowd, with different judges, might have been enough to overtake Johnny, but I think Johnny just dug so deep in that emotion in Food is Love, it was really hard for the crowd to elevate Hakeem over that Food is Love poem, not because it was a better or worse poem, but just because, because, because it was more political. And because Johnny went so personally, dug so deep, that the audience, I don't think, was ready to quite switch to the level of political that Hakeem Furious was going to with Black Lives Matter. He still got a very good score, and, and he still represented his poem very, very well. I'm going to play you a clip from that for those who have not heard Black Lives Matter. The proclamation of our lives is considered a militia of hate. If Black Lives Matter was really a terrorist hate group, you would know that shit. Another thing that might, and again, I'm speculating here, that, that another thing that might have hurt Hakeem with this is that this Black Lives Matter is a shorter poem. It's about two minutes long. And in the context of the larger night in general, if, if you're the audience and you've been hearing nothing but 250, 3, 305 poems, and then someone comes out with a two-minute piece, it is a gamble. At, on one hand, the audience has kind of been trained to listen to these 250, three-minute-long pieces, and that's what they expect. So when you give them that two-minute piece, it's a little jarring for them, and the, the scores can reflect that jarring. But it's also it also can pay off. Especially if you come out there and you give them what they don't expect. If you give them that two-minute piece when they don't expect it and it's exactly hitting the right chord and hitting the right people, then it can be rewarded. I've seen that done uh, plenty of times as well. So Hakeem took a little bit of a gamble with the two-minute piece, with the political piece after Johnny's, and it just was not enough to put him over the top. So Johnny is the last member on this. Hakeem Furious is after him. Uh, I went up there and read... Really just a poem for the room, a poem for the audience. I, I knew that at that point there was no way for me to make this last competing spot or this alternate spot, so I just went up there and, and I read something for the poets. You know, because the point is not the points. The point is not the, the poetry even. The point is, was, and always will be the people, and I wanted to have the last thing I say reflect that. And then following me was Kylie C. going up there who just absolutely is magical. I love Kylie so much. So, yeah, your team for the 2017 Slam Nuba National Competition is going to be Hoser, followed by Meta, then Alejandro Jimenez, Toluwa, and Lucifuri, with Johnny Osai coming up as the alternate. Now, that could change. And I will try to keep you updated and apprised with any changes as soon as I know them. But that's what's going on as of right now. 
uh, break down some strategy here. So we talked about uh, the, the big theme, uh, reclamation of taking back your identity, your history, and, and putting that in, in modern perspective. In the first round, the biggest, most consistently scoring poems that established those themes did well. In the second round, it was people who expanded on those successful teams that did well. And it was people like Lucifuri, like myself, who departed from those themes where the scores really ended up hurting us. And in the third round, it was very uplifting. It was a round for the poets. It was a round for you know, people, if they had already been kind of solidified or if they were in that edge, on that bubble, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, it's a default round for the poets. Uh, Johnny Osai went in there and he absolutely murdered, he absolutely crushed that Food is Love piece with the emotion he was able to tap into for that. And then of course uh, Lucifuri with Impossible for the Crossroads. The third round to me was the round for the poets. So that was your Slam Nuba team selection. Now we had a whole nother team selection happen over this weekend. Oh my god we had the Mercury Cafe! Denver. 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 Queen City of the Plains. Lift high our spirits. Sing well our praise. For in you we live and are loved. So with Mercury Cafe team selection, let me start off by saying this was the biggest team selection slam that has happened at the Mercury Cafe since 2007. Back then there were 16 person slam off and there was no cut it was a very long night 16 poets reading all three rounds long night late night uh this year in 2017 10 years later we had a 15 person slam off a 15 person team selection and thank goodness there was a cut so we went from 15 to 10 between the second and third rounds which i think really helped to it really helped to both preserve the suspense because it was still kind of up in the air who was going to be on this team, who was not going to be on this team. But it also really helped to kind of move the night along, because personally, if you're not in the top ten after the second round, you're not going to be on this team. Just mathematically, it's probably not going to happen. And the prevailing themes throughout this entire night were of survival, redemption, acceptance, celebration. There was a whole lot of talk about addiction and overcoming addiction and surviving despite abuse, surviving despite addiction, you know, uh, survival attempts instead of suicide attempts, uh, acceptance, celebration of the person you are, you know, in the face of everything that tells you not to celebrate it. Those were the larger themes involved here. Now, I do want to talk about a couple of things strategically and a couple of things I noticed before we really dig our fingers into what's going on here. In a 15-person slam, it is very difficult to overcome score creep. And I know I said in the Nuba section that Tolua came out there first overall, really set the tone, really established everything, and everyone else was playing catch-up after that point. In a 15-person slam, if you go early, it is almost impossible to climb out of that hole. By the time it gets around to number 15, the scores usually jump unless you have some amazingly amazingly consistent judges and for the most part the judges for the night were pretty consistent the the scores in the front side of this slam were around the 20 22 23 point mark 
but there was a definite point in this first round where you saw a jump in what happened here. And your flashpoint for this first round was no doubt Megan Fowley coming up there and really just breaking the scores wide, wide open. But that meant some of the poets kind of got swallowed up in, in the positioning there. Uh, myself, one of them, Wheeler Light, drew very early. He drew third overall, and and I will say this, it's not meant to be disparaging, it's not meant to cut anyone else down, but I really do think had Wheeler drawn later in this slam, then things would have turned out much different for him. We'll get into what that means as we break it down round by round. So in the first round, we had two sacrifices because the organizers knew that 15 people is going to make it very difficult for people going first. So one of the ways that the organizers, the bout managers, the venue managers can help sort of address that or mitigate that is to have a couple of sacrifices to try and get some of those lower scores out of the way early so that it's a little more fair for the competing poets. And like I said, the judges were very consistent, all things considered, but you could definitely spot a point in this first round where there was an increase, where there was a jump. Uh, in your order for that first round, we had Elijah going up first with his uh, classic poem about clock punchers fight, but the pendulum wins. Uh, we spend our lives in opposition to what our caskets match. Um, great way to start us off. He was just a victim of early positioning. After him, we had the winner of the Last Chance Slam, Jessica Bardot, uh, doing one of the pieces she did at the Last Chance Slam about how she learned her lesson about love. And then Wheeler Light coming up just absolutely swinging for the fences with poem not applicable. It could be said that liking hot sauce is a lot like liking confrontation. If you call me faggot, I will eat you! The craft in this piece is absolutely amazing. Uh, something that Wheeler does in this poem is he keeps repeating this this refrain. So Wheeler keeps repeating this refrain of poem not applicable. Poem not applicable to this. Poem not applicable if this. And he uses that device to really jump around from topic to topic to topic. He connects hot sauce to homophobes, to elephants, to uh, the game where you say the same word in the mirror three times and someone pops out. Uh, it really is a, a triumph of craft it's got serious it's got heavy it's got everything you could ask for in a slam poem everything that audiences tend to gravitate toward but like i said before wheeler i, I really do think just got swallowed up by an early slot and it was really tough to overcome that in fact he had the high score up until megan fowley every poem after him was playing catch-up to Wheeler. It was just that when Megan came up there, just like in, in Slam Nuba's team selection, like Hoser did, uh, she took the, the room and where it was already at and just absolutely like catapulted it with her piece. Before we get to, to Megan, uh, we had myself going up there after Wheeler doing a, a brand new piece about beauty and holding it in my hands. It was a gamble. After Wheeler goes up there and does this piece that kind of touches on a little bit of everything, it's got the funny, it's got the serious, it's got the political, it's got the personal, it's got everything you could ask for. I go up there and I do a piece that is a lot more heavy, that is a lot more subtle. And the gamble that you take with that is the audience might not get it, they might not reward it, they might not like what you're talking about, and I did not get a very good score. After me was Mickey Rand. Mickey read three brand new pieces, just like Tolua did before in Nuba. Mickey goes up there, 
and does a piece when you called me abusive. Now, now Mickey has been writing a lot about her past and, and surviving the abuse that she took from her dad. But doing this poem, it kind of caught me off guard, this idea of like maybe she's coming to this realization that th there's a possibility she could have inherited this abuse from her dad because someone else called her abusive. And it was so interesting. It, it was a topic that I have never personally heard in Slam before. So Mickey gets up there, does a very, very brave piece, but just was another victim of early draw, was another victim of positioning. Uh, another a highlight of this first round was your Slam Master and previous interview on this podcast, Jill Carno gets up there and does one of her newer pieces, Move, that absolutely crushed. She gets up there and she totally has the, the crowd right in the palm of her hand. I think the only thing that really hurt her here was that it was not memorized. She gets up and she reads off of note cards, but she connected with the crowd. She read it in the emotion that it needed to be read. She hit all the high notes. She did everything she needed to do. And I think had this not been read off of note cards, had it been memorized, maybe she could have been the Megan Fowley of this. She could have catapulted that uh, two spots earlier. Who knows? But I, will, I do want to play you a clip from this piece just because I thought it was remarkable. Here we go, Jill Carno. Me, 27-year-old saleswoman hustling running shoes in a male-dominated industry, working to make all your goals look pretty, hired because I look pretty running next to you. Like I said, everything was exactly perfect with this poem. The only thing I think Jill could have done better is to memorize it. But you know what? I don't know if Jill was playing to win. She was playing to just get up and read some poems. And if that was the game, then she won that game in spades. She won it so, so hard. Uh, so congrats. Big hat tip to her. After her, we had Zachary Siley doing oh, just a heartbreaking piece about how his, every day on his birthday, his mother cooks him his favorite meal and he always eats so much of it. He feels so full. And then he goes in the bathroom and he, he has a bout of bulimia. He throws it all back up and it's such a... a hard hitting just such a, a tug on the heartstrings uh he he ends it with this this line about someday i'm gonna love myself the way my mother does on my birthday oh my god flays me just kills me every time after zach we had megan fally like i said the flashpoint in this first round there was a noticeable jump in scores before megan and after megan she does a piece that I've heard her do once or twice. It was about the Pulse nightclub shooting, but not just about that. It was more about what that means for her and for being queer in public and feeling safe and not and feeling not safe in a lot of places she goes. I'll play you a clip from that one, too. While a love note in a locker turns death threat, while a boy leaves the closet only to lock himself in the river, and now even pride feels like a casket, and now even the rainbow bleeds out, and now I see a man by a rifle in a Walmart, and I don't know whether to hold my love's hand tighter or to let it go. Yeah, so going back to some of the things I said about the Nuba Slam Off, the exact right perfect poem at the exact right perfect time uh, could not have planned this better than if she had you know, gotten to pick the draw herself and pick the poems herself. This was exactly the poem it needed to be when it needed to be there. So Megan Fowley really stepped the game up for everyone before and everyone to follow her. After her, we had Catherine Grace get up there with one of her newer pieces, 2112. It's becoming, I think, a little locally famous. It's about the, the Rush album, 2112. This goes back to the theme that I touched on before, this idea of celebration. 
this this idea of like you know what just because something is silly doesn't make it bad and that you can celebrate in something that maybe other people wouldn't find as intellectually stimulating or as as quote unquote you know good or proper that that they would celebrate but you know what that doesn't matter you celebrate what you like you you do what you do and you go be great at doing it this was exactly a, a, a great placed poem it was a perfect counterpoint to Megan Fowley's and it absolutely rewarded Catherine Grace with a, a very high score just because something is silly doesn't mean that it's bad in this age of cynicism and apathy being unabashedly happy is your biggest rebellion after Catherine Connor Marvin gets up there with the fastest rendition of this particular poem I have ever heard. Because I'm pretty sure every time he's read this piece in a slam, it's always gotten a time penalty. And Connor wanted no time penalties. He was putting in the work. And that really showed itself. Let me play you a clip from This Is Slam and We Do. We bloody experimental circuits. We crash test dummies of redemption. We survival poets. It matters what we do here. One thing that Connor is exceptional at is imagery. One thing he does better than a lot of poets out there is string these very vivid images together in a thematic way where he uses an economy of language. He doesn't overuse words, but he absolutely paints a picture in your head of what he wants you to see and this is a great example of that this poem this is slam and we do the theme the concept for it is nothing new i've i've heard uh, similar takes on this same theme before this idea of like you know what poets it matters what we do here we're in the business of saving lives your survival attempts are going to free somebody this idea that poetry matters and what we do up on the stage matters uh but what connor does with this falls back to that idea of imagery. His his images are so well constructed, so vivid, that he elevates this concept to a different stratosphere. I've not seen this type of poem done as well as Connor does it. So that put him in first after the first round. Connor Marvin was your high score from this first round. After him, we had Julie River going up there with Dear Laura, uh, the poem to the trans lesbian queen of punk right here. This is really well done piece for the same reasons that Wheeler's poem was really well done. It's got a little bit of everything. It's got the humor. It's got the political. It's got the personal. It's got the heavy. Like, it's, it's dusted throughout all this poem. Uh, I'll play you a clip from that from the humorous side, just so you get a taste of what's going on here. I have never felt like a woman trapped inside a man's body except a minute ago when I told you how I used to imagine that I was a little girl trapped in a robot boy's body. <laughs> Shut up! I'm complicated! So that was Julie River with Dear Laura. Uh, a really great piece, a really important piece, and this is a voice that hasn't really been present in Denver Slam, I think, ever. Certainly not since I've been a part of it for the last 13 years. The, the trans... Uh, male to female experience. We've had definitely trans and queer voices on the stage and had them represented in teams, but never this specific voice. This one about transitioning from male to female, what that means uh, psychologically, what it means socially, what it means personally. And so it was a very important poem. It was very appropriate. And if not for a time penalty, Julie River would have been in contention 
the, the scores were so tight. Like I said, judges were really consistent. Scores were so tight at this point that that time penalty, that half a point, dropped Julie from 4th to 7th in the scores. So that's kind of how cutthroat things were. After Julie, we had Erica Skeels with a murder in the alley talking about how this murder in the alley was a part of her and about how... Uh, this is a reflection of the life that she's lived. Uh, Erica writes very, very personal about the the degenerative disorder that she was born with that, that has been a huge part of her life for uh, a long time and how it's impacted her. And this murder in the alley was an extension of that uh, well-done piece, but it just didn't quite live up to the pieces that came before it. It didn't quite power up to a Megan Filey or a Catherine Grace or a Connor Marvin. Just all of these exceptional pieces done exceptionally well it was just a little too much for for erica's piece to kind of stand up against and i'll say it one more time when i criticize uh the slam and when i criticize the decisions people make i'm not criticizing the work and i'm not criticizing criticizing the person i'm just talking about uh the reasons why certain things scored well or, or maybe didn't score so well and i just think this poem didn't quite reflect or didn't quite stack up against all of the four poems that just came before it and so there was a drop off a little bit in scores there after erica we had kylie c double dipping like myself doing both the nuba and the mercury cafe feeling ironically dominant one more time came out there and i think that uh, kylie kind of fell into the same trap that erica did with just such the high highs that we had experienced with Megan, with Catherine, with Connor, with Julie. Uh, this poem didn't quite stack up against what those other poems were, and so there was a little bit of a drop-off in scores. And then Jess Nieberg comes up with Palindrome, which is such an interesting concept for the piece, where she really dissects this this idea of palindromes, words that are spelled the same forward and backward, and the turn is really exquisite. The turn is something that, if you had never heard the poem before, you would never see coming. It's this idea of an anadrome, words that mean something different when spelled forward and backward, sleep and peels, and how she connects that to her life, connects it to her family, about how her, her dad and her mom uh, really fostered the environment that they had with her, this idea of perfection. The word dad is a palindrome, maybe. That's why when mid-fight my boyfriend kicks a hole in the bedroom door, it feels like home. So well done, so well constructed. Uh, after Jess, we had Paulie Lippman talking about Richard Spencer got himself a thesaurus about Richard Spencer getting punched and the alt right and what it means to be Jewish and in public. So that was your first round. So many good things, so many things to talk about. Again, I'll touch more on the predominant themes of the night: survival, celebration. Uh, this idea of acceptance and redemption, all very, very prominent themes throughout the night. And then let's talk about the second round, how those themes kind of played out. So again, with the number one spot, we had Elijah going up here. He read a brand new piece, um, The Foot Race, that I've done clips of on this show before, one about Moses and slow-mo and, and about how Moses uh, lost a lot of things in his life and he never lost a race. Um, again, I think Eli, just like Wheeler, just like a lot of people... Uh, in the front side of that slam just gets swallowed up by the order and I think I don't want to put you know words in his mouth but I speculate that Eli kind of knew what was going on which is why he read the piece he read I think if he had been in better contention or if he had been closer with the scores he might have done a, a different piece one that was a little more tried and true that 
he could have maybe relied on to try and get him into that third round because he knew there was a cut coming. And I think since he saw what was going on, he read the poem he wanted to read, not the poem that would quote-unquote get him the best score. And I, I think that's what's going on. But again, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I don't want to uh, say something that's not right. That's my interpretation of what was going on. After that, we had Connor Marvin doing Bad Dog. One of his watershed pieces, one of the pieces that really was it was this coming out party for Connor Marvin a couple of years ago, back in 2014, was when he cut this down to an appropriate slam length. The first incarnation of this was about four and a half minutes long. So he had to do a lot of editing, a lot of cutting to this piece to get it down to under three minutes and ten seconds. But the poem as it stands is a masterful piece. It is so well done. This idea of bad dog starts off with a story about his dog when he was growing up and about how it kept doing all of these things that would hurt it because it didn't know any better. It was just a bad dog. And then turns that around on himself. Uh, his alcoholism, his addiction, his survival of that, how he was just a bad dog, but really saying that that all of the bad dogs out there, there is hope for you. There is a way out. You are always and forever going to be trying to put yourself back together again, but so, so well done. A clip from Connor Marvin's Bad Dog. And here's a secret. The coffee, it's never going to be strong enough. It's just there to distract you long enough to realize that nothing less than the bright hand of a god is ever going to be strong enough to plug up the heart-shaped hole where the hope runs out. At this point, it was very evident that Connor was making this team. He had the crowd exactly where he wanted them. They were all cheering for him. They were all rooting for him. The judges wanted to see him succeed. The audience wanted to see him succeed. And Connor did not disappoint. He took all of that momentum and he ran with it. Before we get too deep into that in that third round, uh, after Connor, we had Zachary Siley read his uh, the first poem I ever heard him read, which is has to do with canaries and about how canaries were used to determine uh, carbon monoxide in, in caves and in mines and how the miners used to take canaries down with them. And if a canary died, then the miners had to get out. So piggybacking off of Connor's uh, theme of addiction and survival and, and redemption and triumph, this is another one of those types of poems where he really compares this idea of canaries to his own survival of addiction, about how he had to kind of uh, look around at the people in his cave. He saw his friends dying and treated them like, oh, they're the canaries, I need to get out of this cave. And so he found his way out of the addiction. So good. I'll play you a clip from Canaries by Zachary Siley. I turned back for the exit, scrambling my way toward the light at the end of the dark tunnel. Covered in soot, with squinted eyes, I resurfaced from a life spent underground, seeing the world for all its brilliance and brightness for the very first time. Like I said, another one going on about these themes, another one touching on these predominant themes of survival of addiction of redemption and and all of all of what that entails a really good piece really appropriate piece i think it maybe suffered if we're being critical of how scores planned out if we're talking about why they did well why poems didn't do so well i think that maybe the reason why zach didn't get a bigger score is because he had to follow Connor with Bad Dog. That's just, that's a really difficult poem to follow no matter who you are, especially if you're doing something thematically similar to it. it it's a tough piece to, it's a tough act to follow, but doesn't make it any less of a great poem, of a brilliant poem. Uh, after 
Zach. We had Catherine Grace doing her Galatea piece. Another one that we've had on this show before, talking about how uh, social media has made Galateas of certain individuals and, and about how she refuses to take part into, into that culture and that society. Um, followed up very, very well. The audience was on Catherine's side, just like they were on Connor's side. They wanted her to succeed. After Catherine, we had Paulie Lippman doing Day In, Day Out, his poem about binary. One of his older pieces, one of his safer pieces, I think, again, this is me speculating, this is probably him uh, wanting to make sure that he made that cut, make sure he made it into that uh, third round, but still had you know enough ammunition in his arsenal to pull out another uh, poem if he needed to. Uh, this poem always scores pretty consistently, but I think Paulie's got some some newer work that, had he been a little more comfortable maybe in his positioning, he might have pulled out in the second round. But he was playing strategy. He was playing. He wanted to make it in the third round. He wanted to make it onto this team, and this was a perfect poem to do that. Nothing wrong with doing that. After Paulie, we had Kylie C, which is talking about falling into love. Uh, another piece that she did at the uh, Nuba team selection had pretty much the same results. This idea that that love poems amongst team selections, they don't typically do very well. And that's not saying that it's a bad poem. It's not saying that Kylie is a bad writer because those two things are not true. It's just this idea that that love poems in general tend to get swallowed up by so many voices in such a big night and such a big slam. After Kylie, uh, Jessica Bardot doing her laundry piece that we've talked about on this podcast before about how uh, she didn't like doing her laundry, but she could always... Uh, find time to do to do someone else's laundry. Uh, really good piece, but uh, I just think Jessica is maybe not as seasoned as everyone else, and and that inexperience really did shine through. After Jessica was yours truly one more time, uh, doing that same piece I did at Nuba, the Bullseye, the one about teachers carrying guns to class. I was kind of I think in the same place as Eli was, where I saw the writing on the wall, and I was pretty sure I was not going to make it into that third round, so. I was just going up there to read the poem I wanted to read. I probably could have pulled out a more consistently well-scoring piece, maybe tried to contend for the spot, but uh, the way the nature of Slam, the, the unpredictability of Slam, the way that can go, I would rather do a poem I want to do and not get a good score than do a poem I think is going to do good for scores, but maybe it won't be the one that I want to do, and have it not do its job you know like i don't want to go up there and read a poem for scores uh based on the unpredictability of judges what they like what they don't like and have that not score well because at that point then i just did a poem that i wasn't necessarily feeling for the same results as getting up there and doing a poem that's that's more personal that's more close to me and not making it into that uh, next cut anyway at least I got to do the poem that I want to do. So that's where I was approaching that second round piece, that bullseye poem. After me, we had Jill Carno one more time, establishing herself in a way that no one had before, in really either Slam Off, in Nuba or the Merc, where she started off singing. This used to be a very common thing, where poets would sing before, during, toward the, toward the end of their poem. But it's really gone by the wayside. Not a lot of poets do this. So Jill gets up there and sings the intro and the outro to this piece, which really did help distinguish her. It really did help set her apart. So I'll play you a clip from that when my heart's an empty gun. When all this pain is gone, when all this blood has run, when my heart's an empty gun, when my heart's an empty gun. 
I'll learn how to call myself a survivor. Now, much like other sorts of approaches, uh, singing in your poem can be a gamble. If you got a great voice, if you got up to get, uh, if you want to get up there and just like, you know, bring the house down with your voice, go ahead and do it. I've seen it work out extremely well with the likes of Allende Russell with Dominique Christina. I've also seen it work out not so well with the likes of Allende Russell and some other poets who would get up and sing. So it really is kind of a crapshoot, but in this case, Jill used it to her advantage. She, she made sure that her singing was something that differentiated her, set her apart from everyone else, and it was enough to get her into the second round to get her past the cut. Uh, we had Wheeler Light coming up after Jill the one about uh, metaphors and similes. Wheeler's craft is ridiculous. He is one of the best pure writers in the Denver poetry scene right now. I'll say that. Like he, He's up in contention with anyone you can name. From a pure craft standpoint, his, his approach to poetry, his approach to writing and organization and choice, it is surpassed by no one. Like... Uh, no one's better at craft than Wheeler. Uh, there are uh, a number of people who, who he shares space with, but no one is better at it than him right now. I'm going on this podcast, and I'm saying that. Uh, you know what? Talk to me. If you don't agree, if, if you want to have that conversation, Eddie Eifler on Twitter. Find me on Facebook. But I'll put myself out there right now. Wheeler Light, no one can surpass his craft. And it's just so sad that he got such an early draw in that first round. He maintained for a while, but... In this 15-person, it's so difficult to overcome those early draws. Uh, he got the, the metaphors and similes. Just to, to hammer that point home, I'll play you a clip from that right here. This poem will not use metaphors, but it will use similes, which are like metaphors, which describe exactly what something is without accurately describing it. I've been looking for the right word to describe myself, something like metaphor, attempting to describe myself without really being myself. Now, this poem really digs into the philosophy of a metaphor or of a simile and applies it to himself, applies it to his experiences, to other people. So well done. Such a well-constructed piece. And the, the meaning, the execution, all of it is excellent. Uh, after Wheeler, we had Mickey Ran uh, bringing her second of three brand new pieces, Dear Future Kid, really touching on the same sort of uh, topics that she had in the first round with this idea of she wants to have kids. She plans on having a family at some point, but she's definitely scared of what that means because she does come from the background she comes from. Uh, what if that means she is going to, quote, you know, fuck up this kid's life and she's going to screw it up, which is what she talks about in this piece. She openly admits, look, kid, I'm going to fuck up a lot. And that's just kind of the person I am. I'm going to screw your childhood up, but I am going to try. I'm going to be a better parent than my parents were. And I'm going to, you know, give to you what they didn't give to me. I'll play you a clip from that so you know what I'm talking about. I will be as safe and as sane and as stable as I possibly can be. But if I keep growing until I am good enough to deserve you, I'm never going to meet you. Just Mickey is going to this personal place that is so brave, so honest. And it's stuff that I have not really heard before. I've heard a lot of poems talk about abuse and talk about what it means to be assaulted, but never in this context, never in this light. So I, I really want to applaud Mickey for digging this deep and, and doing these and talking about these things in the way that she is. Uh, nothing but love for Mickey Ran on this one. After Mickey, we had uh, Julie River come up and read an older piece uh, where Hitchcock addresses the makers of the Saw franchise. Um, gets up there, talks about like you know what, uh, horror uh, is 
more about what you sh- don't show than what you do show, and, and really, it's more of a commentary on, like, horror movies in general uh, today versus when Hitchcock was around, and about how they've gotten gratuitous and sad and, and not so much suspenseful. Um, gets up there. I, strictly from a criticism standpoint, I don't know if this was the right poem to read at the time it was read. Uh, that's probably why it got the scores that it got. But I think Julie, if I am to speculate, was maybe not as prepared for this slam as some of the other people were. Uh, Like I said, this Hitchcock poem is an older poem. I know Julie has written newer stuff since then, but I don't know if she was comfortable reading that newer stuff. So uh, that's where we get Hitchcock from. And then we had Megan Fowley uh, getting up there, absolutely just springboarding off of her performance in that second round. Uh, Did a poem where the refrain was once. Talks about once this happened, once this happened. And it went to this very, very personal place. Another one of uh, reclamation, another one of survival, another one of just establishing identity. I'll play you a clip from Megan Fowley's poem. Every hero you have ever had has been someone's worst nightmare, which explains your fascination with stacking dolls. Inside you is another, is another, is another, is another, and finally, one unbreakable beam. After Megan Fowley... We had Jess Nieberg going up there toward the end of this second round. Uh, talking about the following, the following blank, the following blank. Uh, Jess came in, and just like Megan before her, she really established a voice and a presence in that first round, and in the second round, she really further defined that voice and further established and, and defined who she was. And the crowd responded to it. The judges responded to it. I'll show you what I'm talking about with this clip from Jess's uh, poem. The following daughter contains a son living in a house in which all of the pictures make him look like a daughter. Again, we're going back to themes of survival, redemption, acceptance, celebration. This was another poem in that thread, and Jess got rewarded for it uh, with the scores. Uh, coming up last in that second round was Erica Skeels uh, with her Define piece. Again, it was another one that touched on Erica's uh, life and, and her degenerative disorder, uh, but how that doesn't define who she is. Uh, a really good piece. I just don't think that uh, in the same boat as me and Wheeler, I just don't think there was enough to overcome after that first round to make it into that second round. So those are your first two. Now from there, we cut down to 10 poets and we went from highest to lowest. So your high score going into that uh, final round was Connor Marvin, who did an absolutely amazing rendition of his piece about I'm an American, I just work here. It, the, the satire is so well executed. The tone is perfect in this piece. And it's a difficult piece because if the tone, the delivery of it, isn't exactly perfectly right, it could backfire. It could blow up in the poet's face. But by this time, Connor had the entire crowd on his side, the entire crowd rooting for him. And they absolutely connected with everything he was saying. I'll play you a clip from uh, that third round piece from Connor Marvin. But don't blame me. I just work here. You want to speak with a manager? I've never seen him. No one has. Rumor has it he's got a name and an address, but you need an appointment. He's he's a busy man. He's in a meeting. The waiting list is $10 billion long to get a conversation. Rumor has it he's not even human. Such symbolism. I've said before that Connor is one of the best at imagery, one of the best at painting a picture with his words. Uh, His symbolism, though, is on point as well, especially in a poem like this. Uh, Mommy put the war back on. It comes with a toy. The the manager 
Uh, you'd have to make an appointment. It's $10 billion long. No one's ever seen him. He's definitely making these big, big connections with this piece. And it was absolutely the perfect piece to do at the perfect time, which cemented him as your venue champ for the Mercury Cafe. He had the highest overall score. After him in that third round was Megan Fally, uh, Fat Girl, Fat Jokes. That was, if we want to go back to the same sort of template we used for the Nuba Slam, the third round is more like the, the round for the poets. It's, for the, it's the uplifting round. It's, it's the one for like, hey, uh, we've already been through these two rounds of just hard hitting, of heavy themes, of uh, all of these highs and lows. And for this third round, I just want this to be like for my people. And to me, I don't, I don't know if she would say that's why she wrote it, that's why she did it, but to me, this poem, this Fat Girl, Fat Jokes, is an example of one of those for the poets. After her, we had Catherine Grace doing one of her newer pieces, The Whore of Babylon, I think that we've talked about here on this podcast before, a uh, persona piece where she embodies this this historical figure, this Whore of Babylon, and what that means and, and historical context and, and what this person would say. Uh, so that helped her definitely get onto the team as Megan Fowley was definitely on the team. Uh, from there, we had Paulie Lippman get up and do uh, one of his shorter pieces, Ghetto. Uh, really, his, his last two poems were, were kind of short. They were around two minutes each. Uh, but Ghetto is a very, very strong piece. Uh, it's one that he's pulled out a number of times before. I've never really seen it get a bad score in all the times I've seen him do it. So it was definitely a good piece, and it definitely accomplished its job because Paulie also made it onto this team. And then we got the big uh, slugfest here. We had Jess Sneeberg and Wheeler Light really duking it out for the last competing member spot and who would be the alternate. Uh, Jess Sneeberg gets up there and does a poem about moving to Seattle and what that means for her family. And there was a point where she dropped it just a little bit, and that was... A, made it a big question uh, for the judges. Like, would the judges uh, take points away for that little bit of a drop? Would they uh, ignore it uh, overall? What's Wheeler going to do in response to that? So Jess gets up there, does moving to Seattle, and it's really between her and Wheeler who's going to get this last competing spot uh, versus the alternate spot. Uh, so after Jess was Wheeler, and he gets up and he does a poem I'm pretty sure I've talked about here on before, uh, I won the writing contest. Again, I cannot sing Wheeler's craft the praise enough. I cannot praise it too high. This is another one of those where it is so well constructed and he uses repetition and he uses uh, theme and he uses uh, mode. All of these things just come together so well, so nice. He won the writing contest. Give you a clip from that poem. But mom, I beat myself at not dying today. I'm still breathing. I'm winning every second. I'm still breathing. Every moment I'm not thinking about suicide is another miniature victory. Now, the important thing to know about this piece, especially if you've never heard it, it is not this boastful piece. It's not like, hey, I won the writing contest. It's about, uh, hey, mom, I won this writing contest. Uh, I, it's the best contest I've won since I won the breath from my own body. Talking about, like, you know, if I win the writing contest, is that good enough? And if I win the writing contest, will that get me these things that, that you've wanted of me and that, that I've wanted of me? It's so good. But in the end, it was not enough. The the, the judges put uh, Jess Nieberg just a little bit ahead of Wheeler Light. But it is so difficult. It's so tough. 
overcoming that really, really early draw. This goes back to what I said at the front side of this segment. Had Wheeler not gotten such a terrible draw, I think he would be a member of this team just because he had to overcome so much. And in a 15-person slam, it is very easy to get swallowed up by all the voices if you go early, which kind of makes what Wheeler did uh, getting the alternate spot a pretty amazing, pretty amazing feat because he did hold the high score up until Megan Fowley in that first round until she was a flashpoint. But from that point, it, it was just really, really hard to make up the ground. After Wheeler, we had Julie River coming over again with one of her older pieces, uh, Hailstones, talking about uh, her mom and about, uh, you know, the absence of her mom, about what it was like uh, losing this very important figure in her life, and about if you had parents that didn't beat you, that, that weren't abusive to you, then you know what? Call them and thank them, because you may not get a chance to, just like she cannot say thank you to her mom today. Uh, really good, really heart-wrenching piece. But at that point, it was kind of already determined who was going to be on the team and who was not. Uh, then we had a Mickey Wren, and you know what, I'm sorry. Uh, Mickey Rand read two brand new pieces. The third one was a piece I've heard before, the one about monogamy and about how she wishes she could be monogamous because then everything would be great. But that's just not who she is. That's not how she's programmed. Uh, she is going to love everyone. She is not going to limit her love. Uh, really good piece. And like, if this third round is for the poets, this poem was for the poets, uh, no doubt. After Mickey... We had Jill Carno coming again. I am so happy for Jill because when I talked to her for a couple of days before this, she's like, yeah, I'll compete. You know, I'll go out for the team. I don't expect to win. I just want to do it for the show. And, and I want to get up there and just read some poems. And if I don't read all three, that's fine. So to see her do as well as she did off of uh, all of her pieces where really she doesn't slam a whole lot. She, she's not really in that world. And to go up there and do what she did and make that cut and, and make the impression she did, I want to celebrate that. I'm going to play you a clip from her poem in the third round. I guess when you're not allowed to know your own body, it is assumed you'll be able to revel in someone else's. So my hat is just 100% off to Jill for going up there and just killing it, just being great at what she is and who she is. And she really did connect a lot with a lot of people that night, even if she didn't make the team. But I don't think that's what she was going for. She didn't want to play to win. She wanted to play to play and to make an impression. She absolutely did that. So huge, huge hat tip to Jill Carno. And last in that uh, third round was Zachary Siley doing another uh, piece on his sobriety, this time from uh, a backwards perspective. And when I say backwards, I mean kind of like looking back through time. He starts it off about talking about celebrating his sobriety, two years of his sobriety, but then he says rewind another year, rewind another two years. It kind of goes back in time. It's her 21st birthday. I convince myself that my sobriety is a burden on her, that my weakness is stifling her joy. I say I'll just drink this weekend and get sober again on Monday. Rewind two more years, I'm sober, but not by choice. I got in a fight over a card game, and the jail cell is covered in my blood. Uh, really powerful piece, really well done. And unfortunately, like I said, at that point, it was kind of already solidified as to who was going to be on this team and who was not. So your competing team members for the Mercury Cafe 2017 National Slam team are Connor Marvin, Megan Fowley, Catherine Grace, Polly Lippman, and Jess Nieberg with Wheeler Light as the alternate. I cannot tell you how excited I am 
for both of these teams, for Slam Nuba, for the Mercury Cafe. We've got such a great mixture of veteran talent, of new voices, of different styles blending together. I cannot wait to see and hear what these teams produce. And as soon as they do, I'll let you know about it here on the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. That was it for our team breakdown. But now, it is my honor, it is my privilege to introduce to you our guest of this week, Susie Q. Smith. Our guest today is Executive Director of PSI and local Poetry Slam legend, Susie Q. Smith. Thank you for joining us today, Susie. Thank you for having me, Eddie. Yeah, I've got some questions for you, if you don't mind. I'm happy to answer them. I'm going to start off with the first question that I ask everyone. Okay. So why Slam? What brought you to Slam? I was afraid of Slam for a really long time, and I thought that it would make me competitive in a way that would force me to change the way that I perform and change my work and change the way I write so that I might start uh, really caring about scores a lot. Um, and I don't know if that ended up being valid for me. I entered SLAM as a SLAM master, as an organizer, and I didn't compete for a very long time. So I became a SLAM master in 2006 of SLAM Nuba, and um, I did, had no idea what I was doing. Um, basically, Ashara Ekundayo and Ken Arkind and Panama Soweto all got together and they were like, hey, we should start another SLAM in Denver. And then they were like, yeah, let's ask Susie to be the Slam Master. And I was like, sure, I'll be the Slam Master. What's a Slam Master? <laughs> and that's how I got into Slam. So I had been in Slam audiences before, for sure, and I had been writing and performing poetry for many, many years at that point. Um, but I had not been a competitive Slam poet at that point. And so I was interested in it. Um, so I took on that as an, organ- as an organizer and came on as uh, the Slam Master and co-coach of that first Nuba team. So I learned a lot about SLAM in that capacity. I didn't compete on a national level until 2010. Um, So my first time competing was at the Women of the World Poetry SLAM 2010. And by that point, I think I'd been around SLAM long enough and felt comfortable in my own voice enough that I didn't feel as afraid that it was going to change me. And maybe it did. Um, I think I did get slammy for a little while there, you know, and I got a little spoken wordy for a while there and, you know, went through a lot of different transitions. And now I just sort of look at those times as like, you know, looking at old pictures of yourself and you're like, oh yeah, I was doing the side ponytail then, that's cute. <laughs> and that's how I feel about you know, those days with some of my work when it was like, really, really spoken word. Little poet and voice going getting on. all in my poet voice. Yeah. And you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, that, you know, I went through those things and it, it embarrassed me for a while. And now I'm just like, oh, I was just adorable then is all that was. It was just, you know, part of the progress, you know, and five years from now, I'll probably be embarrassed by what I'm doing now. So that's great. It means I'm growing. So... Um, I should be embarrassed by what I'm doing now five years from now because five years from now I should be way better is, is the hope we would, and the that's goal that's what we all hope yeah. for really you know that's, that's always if, it's, if I'm growing then I'm doing it right yeah. uh, you've had success in both the performance side of poetry as well as the publishing side that means the two are not mutually exclusive you can do both mm-hmm. um, what do you think Slam as a venue needs to do to be more legitimate in the eyes of academia and the public in general Um, You know, I think that it's already pretty legitimate to the public in general. I think the only places where it's not legitimate are in, you know, um, Cornelius Cornelius Adie has this piece about about this kind of, it's not about slam, but it's about um, poetry. It's called Gratitude by Cornelius Adie, and uh, he's one of the founders of Cave Canem. And... uh, he refers to it as sort of the musty old clubhouses, right? You know, so for those who feel they need the musty old clubhouses to themselves, um, and I kind of feel like there are people that still live in those musty old clubhouses, and those are the ones that don't feel like what we do is legitimate. 
Um, and so, you know, in the halls of academia, um, there are many, many spaces where they don't think that what we do is poetry. And people that just are really, really attached to uh, the old way of doing things um, and are really, really afraid of progress and change. Um, and I just think that they're dying out. <laughs> so I'm not terribly concerned about their, their legitimacy. Um, so we just got to wait them out then. <laughs> I mean, we just continue to do what we do. Um, and I think that there's, I, I personally think there's space at the table for everyone. Um, and there are a lot of different ways that poetry can look and live and exist. And so um, I'm not afraid of them. I don't think they should be afraid of us. Um, you know, a lot of us work in academia. A lot of us, you know, have MFAs. A lot of us, you know, work in those spaces, right? Um, you know, Patricia Smith is a perfect example, right? She's definitely like one of the most successful like slam poets of all time, right? She's definitely legend in all the slam world, holds many, many titles, right? Also, you know, is a professor of creative writing, is widely published, is well respected in all of those worlds um, because they're they're not different, really, you know, and so. Um, I don't think that, and there and there are some differences for sure. There are people who are excellent performers who are going to kill it in a slam, and when you see their work on page, it doesn't work as well. Uh, there are people who have brilliant work on page who are just not performers, and so it doesn't translate well to an audience. So not everyone can coexist in both spaces, and I think that's fine. Um, and then some people do, right? Um, I try to exist well in both spaces. There are still pieces, though, that I think do, that are more effective on page, that I don't really perform. Um, because I think they're just dense and they take a lot of time to digest um, or they're very long and so I don't want to make an audience sit through a 10-minute poem um, so that's that's another piece of it and then there are some pieces that work much more effectively on stage that are not necessarily going to translate as well I think um, on paper um, particularly if there's like specific phrasing uh, sounds that I use um, when I'm playing with tonalities, when I'm playing with automatopoeia, right? Those, those are things that I think are much more fun to perform um, than they are to read. So I think that, you know, there's, it's just about really broadening the definition and the terms um, and our understanding of what poetry is. And that's really what I try to do, is just really broaden everyone's understanding of what poetry is. There's like every year there's some article from some publication somewhere that says poetry is dead. Um, you know, yeah, myself. I mean, yeah, it's like pretty much it's like clockwork. Like every year there's going to be something, somebody's going to write something in, you know, the New York Times or whatever about poetry being dead. Some op-ed's going to show up. And they just aren't paying attention. Um, because poetry is, has been feeding me and keeping me alive for a very long time and many people I know and it's very much alive and we're very much alive and poetry has kept us alive so I know it's alive and also like when you examine like hip-hop is where so much poetry lives and like you can't tell me poetry is dead when hip-hop is in absolutely every corner of every world absolutely so absolutely. all right uh, nitty-gritty time what's your take on the Mark Smith Cuffsy situation um, you know, I think that if I had been involved in planning and organizing that, I might not have booked Mark Smith to be the feature at that event, um, because I don't think that's the population he, uh, who's going to really respond to him well and his work. Um, I've heard a lot of stories about him over the years. My interactions with him have been brief and polite, so I can't say anything really negative there, um, but I don't know him well. So, and I don't know his work at all. He's not been involved in SLAM since I've been around um, and has been very, very um, adamantly opposed to it, really. You know? And so like, he's been pretty vocal about hating SLAM for a long time. Um, so 
knowing all of those things and knowing all of the, the, the feedback that I've heard from people over the years, I would not have booked him in that space. Um, however, I was not involved. So seeing it in response, I think that it was just really um, a matter of time uh, for that to happen. And I also think that um, it's really beautiful to watch um, young people come into their power, right? Uh, I was at BNV in, in Washington, D.C. last summer. And, you know, many of the young poets have filed the same complaints year after year with the organizers. The organizers were not responsive in a way that pleased them. And so they took over final stage and staged a protest at BNV, right? Um, so for it to happen again at Cupsy is like, well, there we are. Like, um, understand who your constituents are and listen to them and serve them, right? And that's my job as the executive director of PSI is definitely to listen to the membership um, and, and serve them and protect them and provide for them like the things that they need and the things that they ask for. So I think that's my, my first goal really um, is you know, honoring the mission of PSI and serving the membership body. So when I hear from the membership body largely that you know, they don't want Mark Smith involved, then, then that's what we do uh, because change is inevitable. And one of the things that I really love about SLAM is that it makes poetry so accessible um, and it also makes leadership really accessible, right? So you have different organizers in every city putting together these SLAMs and putting together teams and having to develop these leadership skills, these marketing skills, all kinds of different skills. So you're a poet, but you're also like, you become a community organizer when you run a poetry SLAM. And there are so many things that you end up doing. And so it's really a great leadership training. And so in that process, like, yeah, people are going to, expect power. They're going to expect their voice to be heard because they are putting in the work and they're becoming leaders. And so you have to be responsive to that. So what do you think that incident says about where SLAM is now versus 10 or 20 years ago? And what does it say about where SLAM is going in the future? I think that it says that, uh, you know, SLAM is so urgent and immediate. And that's, again, one of the things that I really love about it. Um, and because it is so accessible, and it's so urgent, right? It needs to be responsive to, and it's gonna be reflective of, of the community involved. So, I don't know where it's gonna go, um, but I think that it's important for the organizations that hold space for SLAM to exist uh, to be responsive to wherever it goes. Does that make sense? Did I answer your question? Okay. I, 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 just by the, the basic fundamental nature of a SLAM, it's immediate feedback, immediate response from the audience, the, right. the larger context uh, should only lend itself to that, like the change is immediate and mm -hmm. the reactions are immediate. Exactly. So. Uh, what's your take on safe space and what role should Poetry Slam play in establishing and maintaining a safe space? Mm. You know, I get in a lot of these conversations and... I think that the first thing that you really have to do before you can even have the conversation is define what safe means because it does not mean the same thing to everyone and that's so important to understand, right? So there's a matter of physical safety and keeping people physically safe in your space and that's a thing that I definitely work hard to do. Um, when people are known to be violent, um, I do my best to keep them outside of the community and keep them away from Poetry Slam. Um, so those are things that I'm definitely responsive to. Making sure that our venues are physically safe and accessible um, in the ways that they need to be, right? Making sure that we have the staff that we need to keep everyone safe. Um, so physical safety is a thing that I definitely am committed to making happen. Um, emotional safety is much more complicated. And I don't know of a world where that's possible. I have not been there, I have not seen it, and I don't believe it's possible. Um, 
And I think that SLAM is no different, right? SLAM is a microcosm of the community that it's representing, right? So um, people can get on stage and say absolutely anything they want to say, and there's, there's nothing to prevent that. So there's no way to keep people emotionally safe from that. Um, people also have the right to respond, right? So the audience can respond to the poet the same way that the poet can respond to the audience. It's a very, very communal process, right? It's everyone's show. So I think that that's important to understand. So you're balancing sort of like um, censorship and, and free speech and, and safety, right? And all of those things and what that means. But at the same time, I think that the function of Poetry Slam itself is a pretty emotionally unsafe thing to do. Mm. You're taking like your, your deepest feelings and thoughts and your darkest moments and all of these things, and then you're performing it on stage for an audience five of whom have scorecards in their hands and they're going to score your experience and your translation of that experience, right? And they're going to give you scores. And so because it's a competition, right, that's immediately emotionally unsafe, right? So it's a, so I don't understand how that's even a thing that I could ever pretend to guarantee anyone um, in any scenario, but especially not in Poetry Slam, right? There are definitely ways to cultivate safer spaces in open mic scenarios when you have a more controlled environment and no one's getting a score, right? And, it can, and you can very much set a tone like this is what's welcome in this specific space and this yeah. is what's not. And you can definitely cultivate that in open mics. In slams, I don't think that's possible. And part of it, the nature of slam is being open to everyone. Uh, if you walk in and you want to sign up, you sign up and then you get on stage and get given a microphone, right? And so that's just whoever you are, you can do that. And so there's no way to protect anyone from that. Um, and if you sign up, you're signing up to get scored. And that's not emotionally safe. So I think that that's important to clarify. Um, like, what does safe mean? What's reasonable to expect? And I think what's not reasonable to expect. Shifting gears a little bit. Uh, the Women of the World Poetry Slam was held in Denver in 2012. And now the National Poetry Slam is coming to Denver this year. So what are some of the biggest differences between organizing these two events? And what should audiences expect from NPS this year? So the Women of the World Poetry Slam is uh, much smaller than the National Poetry Slam, right? So that's an event that is for women and gender non-conforming people and people outside the binary. Uh, and it was open to 72 poets in 2012. Um, so the National Poetry Slam is teams, right? So that's one of the major differences is that people are performing, you'll hear multi-voice pieces, uh, but it's about five times bigger than the Women of the World Poetry Slam was. So it's, a, it's actually a little more than five times bigger because we're taking 84 teams. So that's going to be a big deal. Um, and we'll have people coming from all over the place. We'll have a team from Australia coming for the first time. So that's really exciting. We'll have a team from Puerto Rico coming for the first time. So that's really exciting. Um, so it's, and it's also a longer festival, right? So we have, you know, again, it's, it's similar in the format that we have um, simultaneous bouts happening at the preliminary nights. Um, but during the Women of the World Poetry Slam, we had three different venues happening all simultaneously. During the National Poetry Slam, we'll have seven preliminary bouts happening all simultaneously in seven different venues um, in downtown and along the Welton Street corridor. So that's all going to be happening. Uh, and then finals is a much bigger affair. Um, we did WAUP's finals at the Denver Art Museum, which was really fantastic and perfect for the size of the event. Uh, National Poetry Slam will happen at the Paramount Theater, which is obviously a much larger venue, and it'll be a much larger audience. So it's like I think that's the biggest difference is that well, it's one open to all genders, um, but it's also a team event, so it's much much larger. So just take everything you did for WAUP's, multiply it by five, and basically you get an NPS. Essentially, yes. <laughs> essentially, uh, it's a lot bigger, and there are just so many more events happening 
Um, there's a lot of different side events that I'm really excited about. So the whole schedule should be released June 15th. Awesome. And so they'll know all about the things so you can look at it and decide, you know, when and where you want to go to different events. So including which teams you want to go see um, and all of the different workshops. There will be writing workshops and performance workshops and open mics. And there's a lot of different ways to be involved, um, even if you're not on a competing team. Um, piggybacking off of that and going back to what we started talking about a little earlier, how can NPS continue to grow and change all while honoring its history at the same time? And how do you think Denver is going to show this growth, this change, but still kind of honor its past? I would say that, uh, I mean, growth is, is great for us. Um, I, I like to be as inclusive as possible, and I think that that's really important. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's important to honor the history of SLAM. So while we don't necessarily need to say the founder's name in every single MC spiel um, at every single show, because most audience, it's really like an inside joke, and I really am trying again to be less insular um, as a community, as, a, as an art form. Um, you know, we're, the, the whole point really was not about poets reading poetry to poets. So having the, having the founder's name in the MC spiel is again, like with, with the callbacks, is very much an inside joke and it's, it makes us more insular, not less. And so I'd like to move away from that um, and be as accessible and inclusive as possible um, while still preserving the history, right? So one of the things that uh, we're working on this year is creating sort of a story video for Poetry Slam Inc. that'll tell you a little bit more about the history and what Slam is and how it started and just like a really short documentary on, on what Slam is and how it started. Um, and I think in Denver, really including some voices from people that have been around for a while um, and have been a part of Denver's slam scene for some years. So, uh, for instance, we'll have uh, the weekend before the National Poetry Slam, we'll have Denver Poets Day, which is led by Ted Baca, who's one of the early pioneers of Denver slam. Um, we'll have Andrea Gibson featuring on finals, and so also they're like definitely a strong voice in Denver slam history. Um, we are also planning to have an indigenous ceremony at welcoming ceremonies to like as we open up the space and remind people like whose land that we're standing on. So there's a lot of important different things that we're going to be including. Um, there will likely be a side event that features uh, some beat, some readings of beat poets that have some history in Denver. So there are a lot of different things that we can kind of celebrate, like Denver's poetry history, Denver slam history, and then overall slam history. So I think that you know you can honor history while allowing yourself to change. On a more personal note, you have a daughter who's about to graduate high school. I do. <laughs> uh, how does that signal a change in the life of Susie Q. Smith? It's you know I think it's going to be interesting. Um, one thing it's it's I'm really moving into phase three and I don't know yet what that's going to look like. I've been a mother for my entire adult life, um, with you know and a single mother for the last 15 years, uh, 16. Uh, so that's, it's, it changes um, my role pretty tremendously um, in, in my responsibilities for sure. Um, and it allows me to do some different things. Um, so, you know, it might mean that I run away to an MFA program or, or some residencies. Uh, it might mean that I relocate. It might mean that I, that I hang out here for a while. Um, I mean, I'm definitely here for at least another year. Um, but but I don't know yet. It's it's interesting to to have to have some choices around <laughs> what that looks like, and I haven't made them yet. Okay. Just endless possibilities. Indeed.
So I think it's a matter now of like kind of weighing out opportunities and see what makes the most sense for me. Um, but it's, it's pretty uncharted territory. My last question. It's the same last question I ask everyone. Okay. So you're walking along the beach. Mm-hmm. Find a magic lamp. Okay. We're up three times. Magic Genie pops out. Mm-hmm. Says you have one wish for Denver poetry. Mm-hmm. What is your one wish? I wish for all of us to be loved and celebrated and cared for and well-received. I wish for all of us to have space to grow and be supported in that growth. I wish for all of us to eat and uh, be able to live according to our truest purpose and our truest selves and and be loved for that. Is that too much? Not at all. all. Let's do it. Wish granted. Let's go. Uh, all right, so any last plugs, any last words you want to say to our audience before we turn off the microphone? I would say check out nationalpoetryslam.com and you'll get all of the details. We definitely still need volunteers, so you can sign up to volunteer. That's a great way to get into events for free, so you get into everything except for finals for free when you volunteer, so hey, you might as well do that, um, and we'd love to have you. Um, so nationalpoetryslam.com, check it out, and, and come to the event August 8th through the 12th in Denver, Colorado. Uh, it is going to be the largest Poetry Slam event we've ever seen in this state. It's also the largest Poetry Slam event in the world. So um, it's happening in our city. We're bringing it to you. There are many really wonderful people working super hard on making this event great. So you can enjoy it. So I hope that you will come and enjoy it because we're doing this for you, Denver. All right, another huge thank you to Susie Q. Smith for joining us. Let's head back to the podcast. Another fantastic interview here on the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. Once again, a huge thank you to our guest this week, Susie Q. Smith for donating so much time and being so open. Uh, That was amazing. That was an awesome, awesome interview. And I hope you liked it as much as I did. Uh, Just a few quick hits before we get on out of here. Your feature at the Mercury Cafe this Sunday, May 21st, will be... Actually, we got a dual feature, Ash Vernon and Jordan Hamilton. Don't forget, sign-ups for the Mercury Cafe are at 7.30. The open mic goes on at 8 o'clock. Your features go on about 8.45, depending on the open mic, and then the slam will start about 9, 9.15. If you'd like to volunteer for the National Poetry Slam, visit npsdenver.com. Go to the Get Involved section, and you can fill out a volunteer form for there. Or if you would like to propose a specific side event, if you want to propose an open mic or a workshop, you can do so from that website. So if you would like to get involved, you want to know some more information, just go to that website, npsdenver.com. This week, I would love to thank Mahogany. Let's have a dance battle, you know. Ian Doggerty. What is green? Has four legs and would kill you if it fell out of a tree and landed on you. A pool table. Piper Mullins. What did the fish say when it hit the concrete wall? Lindsay Thomas. Damn. And the audience at both Mercury Cafe and at Slam Nuba. Once again, this is Eddie Eifler signing off. Always remember the points are not the points. The poetry is not the point. The point is, was, and always will be the people. See you next week, everybody.